I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live... F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. And for those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. I should tell you some stuff about us. We're an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. The core of this show is a bunch of F1 fans talking about F1. We rotate an international panel of journalists and communicators from the UK, from the US, Canada, Brazil, the Netherlands, Denmark and France and even Australia as well. We do a show every single Sunday night at 8pm UK time. We review the races at 8pm the night of the race and we have regular new shows as well. But on top of that, We have quite a few specialist shows too, where we're joined by special guests from the world of F1. So, for example, we have fairly regular visits from the likes of Alex Brundle, who is the F1 TV commentator. And we have Chris Medlin drop in fairly regularly throughout the year from Racer.com. We have Matthew Summerfield, the best tech journalist in Formula One from Motorsport.com. Summers F1 comes and joins us as well for special tech shows hosted by Matt to Rumpets, who joins me in the shed right now. Hello, Matt. Hey there. How's it going, Spanners? And that's not the only tech we do. We also do tech with Stuart Mitchell from Race Car Engineering. And I tell you what, we even have some dude who used to be in charge of an F1 team. Uh, and that dude is here right now, Mr. Matthew Carter, who was the ex-CEO of Lotus F1. Hello, Mr. Carter, sir. Hello. And I can't quite fathom why you keep hanging out in such low company, but uh, we're delighted that you're here. In fact, I remember when you first got in touch with us, I, I didn't believe it was you. And I, I, I ended up going like, trying to like, well, prove it then. And you had a private Twitter account and everything. And then I had to go and check with Joe. Is this, is this car fellow? Is he, is he legit? But we've had a wonderful time chatting to you over the last two years. And 
I think we've learned more from you than any other guest we've had on Missed Apex. And the familiarization is so much that you're referring to me as dude now at the start. Like it. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, pure <laughs> reverence only from here on in. Uh, why don't we start by talking about a, a little bit of testing? Because I'd love to hear from this from a, a team principal point of view. What's the story with Sebastian Vettel's steering wheel, Matt? And we'll see if uh, Matthew has had any similar experiences. Well, this is one of my favorite things is I caught on Twitter. I believe it was Scarbs. Apparently, uh, of all the things Sebastian Vettel's having difficulties getting used to at Aston, the power steering doesn't feel the same. The car drives differently. It tends to break. So he gets half the laps that Stroll does, which is entirely coincidence. We are entirely positive of that. Apparently, the need to put the buttons where he wants the buttons to be caused Aston to basically rebuild his entire steering wheel so that when he went to grab the button and turn it, it was the one that did what he wanted to and not the one that made the car, you know, shoot the, shoot him up into the air with a parachute, like the like Bond, Bond yeah. mobiles. And I just, it sparked my imagination and I, I just became curious if, if a driver or what thing a driver had asked for in terms of accommodations that was possibly the most annoying that you'd ever come across in your 10 year running Lotus. Um, I don't, uh, I, I don't think that's that strange to be perfectly honest. Um, so the steering wheels, I mean, it, it's a, a fact that gobsmacked me back in 2014 that the steering wheel costs about 30,000 pounds, each one of those steering wheels. So, you know, when they crash and they get upset with themselves and they throw them out of the cockpit and they bounce around on the floor, there's, uh, there's potentially about 30,000 pounds worth of uh, steering wheel flying in the air. But they, they cost a lot of money. And as far as I was concerned at Lotus, they were unique to the driver. Um, so the driver designed in the preseason and the run-up to it, they designed where they wanted the buttons to be and how they wanted them to work. For example, um, Roman, so, so my two drivers, as, as you remember, were Roman Grosjean and Pastor Maldonado during my time. Um, Roman had a very conventional, as you would in a gearbox on a road car, um, down on the left and up on the right to change gears. Yeah. Whereas Pasta had it that you pulled both gears, both knobs towards you to go down a gear and pushed them away from you to go up a gear. And that was how he'd always, ever since he was in karting, that's how he'd always done it. So, um, so you don't have to push both of them, but both did the same thing. Yeah. So if he was going around a sharp right-hand corner, then he could change up or down with, with one hand effectively. Um, didn't did stop him from sliding off the track at many occasions, but he, um, but he, yeah. So there's, there's all those sort of differences, but there's also, yeah, they, the, a driver will request to have his talk button or his drinks button or his, uh, his toggles in different positions, depending on, on just what suits him and what he's most comfortable with. Um, maybe what it does, um, open up a whole different discussion as to how well-prepared Aston Martin are, because I would have thought that's something that should have been uh, sorted out in the simulator months ago. Hmm. That's really interesting with the steering wheels, because on my sim wheel, which I convinced myself is exactly the same as uh, as real-life racing, by the way, it's uh, I, I pull the right one to go up a gear, the left one goes down a gear, but if I push yeah. them, they do the opposite. So the one that I pull uh -huh. up a gear with, if I push that forward, it also goes down. And, and that is interesting that you have to kind of account for the one-handed operation. And I didn't realize that F1 drivers did that as well. So they accounted for if they're on a tight hairpin, 
needing to to pull and push in a different way. Well, as I say, Roman didn't. It was it was it was a it was as far as I was concerned. I only had the two drivers. Oh, well, the test drivers and, and whatever. But um, Jolien as our test driver and Charles Peake as our test driver, they tended to have the same steering wheel as the the person whose car they were jumping into generally. So did the drivers ever ask for other stuff to be personalized or customized or um, I want green M&Ms coming out of my <laughs> drinks bottle or anything like, I mean, because I, I know they are only asking for these things so they can drive the best they can. But at a certain point, did you, did your engineers just go, uh, I, I don't think there's many other things. I mean, obviously, um, we can get into the intricacies of setup and, and that is, that is purely unique to the driver, you know, how, how they want the front end, the rear end, et cetera, the brake bias, and they can change all that as well. So that, that's a whole different subject. But um, in terms of, you know, their drinks bottle was always water at Lotus. I don't know whether that's moved on over the years into some, actually, no, it wasn't. It was water, but it had um, some sort of minerals or um, alka- um, something inside it. Electrolytes is the word I'm looking for. They yeah. had electrolytes in it so that when they were sweating, they would um, it would it would replenish. Um, aside from that, obviously the seat is very very custom fitted. That's that's completely unique. Um, that you literally, as you uh, if you look at the insole of the seat when it's out of the car, you can see a perfect shape of the driver's um, rear end. <laughs> okay, well, uh, good to know. There's a chat room question there, Matt, which I thought I'd go to first, if that's okay. Uh, it's I think from thinking the same thing. Here. Brilliant. We are joined by a live chat room. You can search for us on Mist Apex uh, podcast. Search for Mist Apex podcast on YouTube, and you'll catch our live stream. And the Sunday ones are generally open to the public. When we do one like this on a Friday or during the week, we have it a bit chilled out, and our patrons uh, are the only ones invited to join us. So we are sat here right now chatting with 800 of our, our best friends, one of whom is Jack Reeves, who says, how easy is it to change these things? How much could have been changed for George in the Mercedes at Shakir in the time available? So I think that's a fantastic question, Jack. If he'd have come to you as the substitute driver with a, a bunch of demands and changing steering wheels, is it like, nah, sorry, mate, just you've got to deal with it for this race? As I was at Lotus, certain things he would have had to deal with. With him at Mercedes, I'm sure he got whatever he asked for. I'm sure he could have. I mean, maybe maybe some of the layout on the steering wheel he had to he would have had to suck up, but he'll have certainly had a seat fit, so his seat was perfectly fitted to him. Um, pedals um, and the distance that the pedals are away from the steering wheel, etc. All that sort of stuff is 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 changeable, um, yeah. and they can do that fairly quickly as well. Um, which, funny enough, is one of the things that I, I found quite interesting about the um, during testing. Mercedes were saying that that was one of the reasons they were slow out of the um, slow out of the pits after yeah. lunch every day was because they were swapping the stuff around for the drivers. And I don't doesn't quite make that much sense because it doesn't take that long. Ah, oh, well, I wonder what it is. Did you have any guesses what it is the difference between Bottas and Hamilton and what they like? Well, what they they said that the, obviously the seat, but the seat is is really yeah. easy to change, and then it's um, the pedals, the the I think you can you can change the pressure of the pedals. I don't think I know. You can change the pressure of the pedals, and you can change where the pedals sit in the in the survival cell. Um, and they'll they'll have their own unique, uh, most comfortable way for that to fit. So you do change the pedal box, but you just take the nose off, and you basically can reach in there through all the uh, all the suspension, and you can pull out the brake the the pedal box and change it. So without calling that that claim by Mercedes a lie, 
do we think that was a lie to cover up for other problems they were having in their general setup and, and changeover? Potentially. That Potentially. pause was telling. I think that is I a... don't. I mean, they, they, <laughs> I, I think I saw somebody say that they, they um, were looking into how the car had reacted and making certain setup changes as well. Well, I, I do know from reading about testing that uh, McLaren has stated that they didn't do, although they did a lot more laps than uh, Mercedes or Aston did, that they weren't on a par with like Alpine and such. And part of that was because they committed to drive to having both drivers in yeah. the car every day. So it does take some away, but they also did a lot more laps uh, than Mercedes did. So, yeah, I think you're right. It's probably more than just a straight swap over of stuff going on there. So we, we never did that. But again, back in my day, we had two tests of four days. So you had plenty of time. So you could, for the two drivers, you could have, you know, Roman then Pastor, Roman then Pastor on the four days. Um, and also we didn't do as much mileage as they do these days because um, 2014 was right at the start of the hybrid engines and they were <laughs> not the most reliable. So we didn't do that many laps in testing. So it wasn't. Uh, so that's one of the things I think Mercedes really changed that. When Mercedes came in and did 126 laps in a morning session, then obviously it's going to be difficult for the drivers to do both sessions. Some of them were not that reliable. <laughs> yeah. Renault? Largely Renault, yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was going to say don't name any names, but we we need to. And um, the, the next thing I think we wanted to talk to Mr. Carter about and get the team principal point of view on was our, our argument we had last week in our testing review. So Matt was adamant that, that Mercedes were doing a glory run at the end of testing to perhaps appease some panicked shareholders. That, that is, sorry if I'm mischaracterizing you, Matt, that's what I thought you had suggested. Whereas I, I didn't think that Mercedes kind of had any real incentive to do it. In fact, it was at the end of day two, I think that Mercedes strapped on some some softs and went and did some fast laps. So it's that kind of mentality, Matt, of the ability to change your your circumstances to go and do a fast lap. I think the most famous example is possibly people chasing sponsorship. So Williams 2014 running underweight, so the legend goes. But you've got some inter interesting stats about last minute glory runs on day three from the teams. And perhaps we can talk about what incentive there might be. Yeah, well, I think the Mercedes thing, I think I was just making the point that it was um, not in keeping with their normal plan, which is they don't do runs like that very often. I don't know if I would really want to be put in the box of saying that was a glory run. I think it might have been an act of desperation because the car just didn't seem to be working on all the other tires. And and they were just maybe wanting to get a feel for, well, what does it do if we give it really good tires yeah. and, and take some of the fuel out and just and see if we can find some kind of benchmark where it starts to handle a little bit better so maybe we can get a handle on this thing. But the last hour glory runs, those were a whole different thing. I've never seen that before. And I do wonder if it's not down to a bit, the team's wanting to have at least one quality sim in the bag before they go to actual racing. And the fact that we only had three whole days of testing. Yeah, I, th I think all of the above. Um, with Mercedes, I tend to agree with you. I, I don't think it was a glory one, but um, 
but everything works better the, the faster you go. Um, you know, it's the, the faster you're going around the track, the more the aero works, the more the tires come in, you know. So maybe they were wanting to test. I don't think they, they, they need to do a glory one. I don't think they need to appease their shareholders or their sponsors. Um, very different for me back in Lotus. Yes. So um, certainly back in 2014. So we did exactly that. We put Charles Peak out. Um, and I believe we got the fastest, the fastest time. I'm sure someone can look it up. But I think we got the fastest time on day three of one of the of one of the tests with a Renault Lotus that was a bag of nails really, but we just put a splash of fuel in it, put the softest tires on it, and 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 sent it out there. And that and was it enough. Was purely done so that we were top of the of the of the. <laughs> and it and it works in mm. so much as um, back then and, and equally now as well. You know the report on the BBC website or on Autosport would have been a picture of the Lotus with our sponsors on it, and it would have said. Rightly or wrongly, you know, Charles Peak fastest in um, third day of testing. Um, and that gives you publicity and it gives eyeballs to your, your potential sponsors. And it raises a bit of the morale in the team. Some of the older hands in the team hated it. Um, there's a few people. Alan Permain, for example, is an absolute classic. He, he and I had many heated arguments about that because he felt that it was something that smaller teams did. And he was still used to being... He was Fernando Alonso's race engineer when he won his his titles at Renault, et cetera, et cetera. And he'd been mm. he was a stall he is a stalwart of uh, of F one, and he believed that was something that small teams did and that we shouldn't be doing it. So I had to explain to him that we uh, weren't necessarily a, a big team anymore. <laughs> that is absolutely fascinating. So did the idea come from you? Was that a driver mm-hmm. of like I want to get because you're like a business guy? So were you thinking exactly? Of so yours? I asked the question. Yeah. I said, surely. We can't get to the, because when this was testing, I think it was, I I can't, honestly can't remember. I I have a feeling it was in Bahrain, bizarrely. So we did some testing in Jerez and we did some in Bahrain. I think it was Bahrain. And, um, and I remember saying to, in a meeting, saying to them, there's no way we could get top of the timing charts is there. And they were like, well, I mean, we can get close. And I was like, yeah, but we're seconds away from the Mercedes. And, um, and they said, look, if we go out right at the very, very end and we put a splash of fuel in it, um, but you, you have to remember testing is, is a lot of teams are the teams that are doing well or that are comfortable are using it to, as it says on the tin to test. So they're wanting to break things. They're wanting to try things that they wouldn't have other chances to try. They're wanting to, they'll always do a run out of fuel test, um, where they, you'll see a lot of that often the, um, often, um, often the, uh, on the last day, yeah. the the session will be stopped before the before it ends, um, because um, because cars have run out of fuel on the track or cars have stopped on track and they believe they've broken down. But that's that's them literally running the running the fuel out. Um, so yeah, the testing is there for the the teams that are doing well to to make it to to test things to test things to breaking point. I bet do they do you reckon they regretted sort of revealing that to you because they could have got away with it. You could have said, oh, it's not possible for us to get to the top of the timing things, is it? And they could have gone. No, <laughs> and they've inspired I know, because, the glory because some of them, some some of them, some of the people that were working there were obviously trying to appease me. So they were like, right. "Yeah, yeah, of course we can, of course we can, boss. Yeah, 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 we'll do that. Yeah, we can do that." And then you see, like the oh, Alan Permain with his head in his hands saying, um, "And what was know, Alan Permain's role at that time?" He was then and still is, I believe, his title is sporting director, but he's the guy that sits on the um, on the pit. He's the he's the second to the left on the pit wall 
So you have the strategist on the far left, and then he's the next one. He's the guy that told Kimi Raikkonen to, um, when Kimi said to shut up, leave me alone, or whatever he said over the radio. That was that was Alan. Um, he's a really nice guy, but he's been he's been he's worked his way from. I want to say he's worked his way from mechanic all the way up to to being uh, sporting director or racing director, whatever his title is now. Wow, that is a that's a cool story. I I like. I like those uh, kind of rags to riches when it's a guy that was literally there mechanicking and then they have some real influence in the sport. Well, the ultimate is Ron Dennis, isn't it? Mm. You've seen those pictures of Ron Dennis back in the day when he was a, um, a young, fresh-faced mechanic. <laughs> yeah, and not just some financial suit that sweeps in and, uh, and claims power. Is that, what, is that what we're saying? I did. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I quite like that route. Of course, the other one is like you've got people like Zach Brown who is come from a kind of they claim to be drivers, Zach Brown, Toto Wolf, Christian Horner. They all kind of claim that driver role uh, and like, oh, we're pure racers that have come into F1. But really, they're finance guys. You know, the finance guys are the ones who seem to find themselves at the top of the F1 tree, the F1 teams. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. I don't, certainly not in Christian's case. He's not a finance guy. Isn't he? I don't think. Oh, I thought he was. He's, he's not particularly the sharpest tool in the box either. Uh, Toto is. Toto's got some financial backing. You know, he's he's done investments and stuff, and and his route into it. He did do some racing, but his his uh, his racing background sort of gave him interest. I think he bought into Williams, and that was how he ended up where he is. Um, Zach, yeah, different kettle of fish. He's um, purely advertising and um, money side of stuff, and a little bit of racing. They've oh. all got their own story, haven't they? I mean, um, every single one of them. You know, you look at Gunther and how he ended up where he ended up and the way that he sort of forced things around at Haas. I think we're going to cover a lot of those characters if we touch on Drive to Survive. I don't know if you've caught any of that today, if you spent your morning binge-watching that, but I don't want to stray too far away from the testing because I've got a question in my head. Was it really just as simple as take the fuel out and put low uh, and put soft tyres on? Because, I mean, the legend goes when Williams were doing their glory runs, it was just a fully illegal car. And other teams have been um, known to do that too. So, you know, was that all it took? Or can you also do other things in testing that you just couldn't do in the race? Yeah, you can go underweight because you you don't necessarily have to put the ballast in and and it's not necessarily scrutineered. Uh, But we didn't. We certainly, we all we did was put a splash of fuel in it, put the softest tyres on and turn the engine up to, um, to its maximum. Um, so it's in quality mode plus, you know, it's in, it's in, if it breaks, it breaks mode. Um, which again is, you know, as as I said just now about testing, it's, um, in formula one, the mentality is always that things should only be good enough. Well, they always used to say to me things, it's changed a little bit because engines now have to last a bit longer and all those things. But basically we don't want to get to one lap past the end of the race. You know, if, if, uh, if a consumable part is going to break, then what we ideally want is it to be light enough and weak enough that it breaks the lap after the checkered flag. And they, they try and get it to that point. Uh, so I do want to ask about that because there was some talk at the time on the last day when everybody was running those super fast laps that maybe even throughout testing, uh, Ferrari were using Alfa Romeo and Red Bull were using Alfa Tari to test higher engine modes than they themselves cared to run during testing. Do you think do you think that could be an actual thing? Yeah, definitely. So again, I, I don't know because I maybe maybe you would know Matt better than me. But back in back in my day, there was a limit to the number of engines, but testing engines were separate. 
So you did have a you you could have a, you could have a testing and you could blow it up. It wouldn't impact you during the rest of the season. I don't uh, yeah, still I, a thing. I think it is still a thing. Yeah. I think the engine supply so that, starts. So that, to, yeah, why not? I mean, if if you're Ferrari or Mercedes or, or Honda, then then why not? Uh, you know, really test the test the limits of the engine that you've got. Matteo's got a cheeky comment there about uh, about opening the DRS because I think there was some suggestion that Yuki Tsunoda's yep. glory runs were being run with the DRS open in strange places. And I don't know, it always used to be the case that you could just, if it wasn't a race session, you could just have you your DRS open. whenever yeah. you want. But obviously it takes some skill. The earlier you open it, the more jeopardy you've got because you're losing rear wing, Matt. Yeah, I wish they would go back to that for qualifying. It made it oh so much more interesting. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't that wasn't while you were there, was it? But I do remember um, Roman Grosjean at, Cops, no, was it a cops in uh, Silverstone? Tried to go flat out with the DRS open, and it spectacularly didn't work. Yeah, I mean, it. it uh, you could do it when I was there, yeah, and and also you can. Um, it may not be a very well known fact, but you can also affect the. Um, you can change the effect of DRS by how steep you make the the rear wing. So, you can you can put more drag on, and it can create it can give you a bigger advantage when you when you release it. So there's um you'll you'll run all different levels of drag at different circuits and you can you can affect that and some drivers some drivers are better than other drivers so they could handle the DRS um you know being a bit more draggy and being a bit more um giving them a bit more of a boost if you like. Hmm. So with Yuki Tsunoda being accused of playing games I've I've always had a a theory in testing when I'm trying to wildly speculate and tease out results uh, where I try and look for the marker team like which team is just playing it straight? So when you see like a battle between Ferrari and Mercedes, say like you did in 2017, 2018, uh, and they're kind of, they're, they're, they're trading places in testing and you're wondering which one's faster. And then suddenly like Minardi or Spiker come in with a comparable time and you just go, ah, well, that completely discounts the Ferrari time and the Mercedes time. So did you ever get a sense of the teams that were just playing it straight? And like, could you get a sense of, right, these guys are on glory runs, they're sandbagging. But actually, if we look at Midland, they are just running genuine, genuine lap times. Well, I mean, it's probably not the answer that you want to hear, but I don't think you can really read anything into testing at no. all because nobody knows what on earth is going on. And, you know, everyone is... Everyone's got a testing program and everyone's running that program with different drivers at different parts of the day with different bits on the car. You know, that's why it's testing. So it's really difficult to say this is the, and, and I still struggle to comprehend any of the, um, the high level journalists that are saying, oh, this is the, this is the running order because, you know, surely they've learned by now that that's not the case. And by the time you get to the first race of the season, it's all over the place. Well, I would think it would be one thing to say, this is the running order we observed in testing, which I think is legitimate to say, well, here are the long runs. Based on that, we think they had this much fuel. Based on that, we've made these calculations. You can sort of create a chain of inference and deduction there. But that's not the same as saying, oh, we think based on this that Red Bull will win the first race because Mercedes yeah. looks like they're nowhere. No one knows what their program was or what they're going to exactly. have on their car when they show up. Having said that, I do want to ask, uh, uh, if you watched some testing, were there teams that seemed like they were trying to be conspicuously inconspicuous in the <laughs> sense like we don't want any attention? Like I'll give you an example. Alpine, 
they did absolutely nothing noteworthy other than drive a lot of laps. They weren't real fast, no crashes, nothing blew up. It almost seems like they're saving something for race number one. Did you get that sense from any of the other teams? Were they nonchalantly whistling whilst they were going down the paddock as well? Like nothing to see here. <laughs> With Alpine, I don't think I think that's probably just where they are. I think they um, agreed. They generally um, flatter to deceive. I don't, I don't know. That's not the right. That's not the right thing to say. But they um, no, I don't think so. I, 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 it's a boring answer, but I I genuinely think that that they've all got their own different um, runs that they're doing. They've all got their own um, testing schedules, and and you can't really read much into it. You know, it's going to be the first race, boring as it may sound, is going to be. Probably Mercedes, Red Bull, Aston Martin, McLaren. You know, it's it's going to be what we think it's we thought it was going to be. It's not. There's no there's no revelations. Um, I mean, you could say AlphaTauri maybe is a revelation that they're going to suddenly. But I, I, well, we'll see. I could be proved. I, I think we could have a little game of let's wildly speculate on the order there. But I <laughs> listening to you kind of struggling to desperately not say anything nice about the team formerly known as Renault, but also not wanting to just overtly slag them off. It's a nice balancing act. You nearly got away with it. Um, do, do you feel differently about Alpine now it's Renault? Or do you, is it is it the, the same team just in new clothes? Because they did dispense with what I always felt as an outsider was a fairly toxic element in Cyril Abitable. I know a lot of people really love him, but Stuart Neal asked in the chat room, what did you think of his departure? I don't think we've spoken to you actually since nope. since he nope. left. Um, so is it a significantly different organisation and what, what difference is there without Cyril there? Um, so I, I never worked with Cyril. Um, he was running Renault uh, power units. So after he... Um, after he did, didn't necessarily have the best of times at Caterham, he, right. he fell back into the Renault fold. And um, so then I dealt with him as we moved from Renault to Mercedes engines, which wasn't the smoothest of transitions. And then I had to deal with him, unfortunately, when Renault bought the team. Um, and we had our ups and downs, let's say. Um, he's a very passionate guy about racing and about Formula One. And I genuinely, and I've just to, to kudos to him for a second, I'm not convinced that Renault, I'm not convinced that Renault would have bought Lotus yeah. if he hadn't have been there. Okay. I think he, he was he was very much, I, don't get me wrong, I think he did a lot of it for his own personal benefit, um, but he was the one that was really pushing the narrative, um, him along with Carlos Ghosn. Um, they, they were the two that really sort of swayed a lot of the other, um, the, the doubters, if you like, that Renault should go back into F1. So he probably deserves a little bit of kudos for that. In terms of his management style and his man management, I still speak to and spoke to a lot of the people that worked there for, for the years after I left. And, um, I think it maybe leaves a little to be desired. Um, I think he, um, I've seen some people have been sending me some clips from Drive to Survive of um, of, of, <laughs> of the way he talks about Ricardo leaving and how let down he feels and how emotional and uh, what a um, what an emotional person he can be and uh, I think Christian Horner says it's like your girlfriend leaving and staying in the house for the next year. Um, so I mean, all of those things, you know, it, Cyril is he's a character. Formula One needs characters, and mm-hmm. he's a character. He's just not necessarily. 
I think I've said enough. He's not necessarily the best of man managers, I wouldn't have said, but I think he was very, very much responsible for setting Renault off on the path. Mm. He maybe told some porky pies when he was talking about where he felt the team could be and how quickly they could get there. And I saw a lot of those business plans where they were looking to buy Lotus. And at the time I was, this is, because he really felt that within five years, they'd be world champions. And five years is this year. They, um, they did what they gave that impression to everyone i remember arguing but it was that they were the moving up here. that they were yeah. going to go from eighth to fifth to third to constant podiums to winning races to so two years ago would have been constant podiums last year would have been winning races and this year would have been world champions that was the the timeline that they set and he got renault to sign off on a huge amount of money to make that happen well, not to cast aspersions, but they did have a second and a third last season. That's not everyone too far had a, a second and a third, didn't they? <laughs> there isn't. Is there a team that didn't do that? I mean, maybe, but you can't. Last year, you can't, and that really annoyed me. Last, it didn't annoy me, but what it it, it was a little bit of a bugbear was that when Ricardo was jumping up and down and saying, "Yeah, yeah, yeah we got a podium." He, they got a podium after Alpha Tori got a podium. They yeah. got a podium after racing, but yeah. you know, it was everyone got a frigging podium last year it's not like you know it's not like as if Renault would a proper celebratory podium for that team was spa 2050 uh it's a participation trophy these days everybody's getting exactly one. that it, oh because the clip of it was ricardo going finally we get what exactly. we deserve finally yeah. and it was like yeah true finally, but after everyone else i think they were the seventh team on the grid that actually got on the podium or something i mean it's anyway no, that's good. That's good. Let the hate Let come out. out. I can feel it. Come on. Yeah, have, have, a, have a beer, Mr. Carter, etc. Uh, right. Um, I, I got somewhat waylaid just listening to that story. However, um, I... I so what was the question? Sorry, you did ask me a question yeah. about Simon. No, no, no. Now, now, now there's a million questions going through my head from all of that. So if, okay. if Cyril had not done that, was Lotus and owned by Janai still at the time, were they always going to sell at the end of that season or would they have remained had Cyril not convinced Renault to go all in? So, um, you, you can plead the fifth if you, if you prefer. No, it's okay. It's fine. I, I just, I sometimes check myself as you know. <laughs> um, so if Renault hadn't signed, yeah. uh, if Renault hadn't done the deal, Pastor Maldonado would have remained in the car. So, Pastor Maldonado brought with him $30 million of PDVSA money. The PDVSA money would have come to Lotus approximately six months before the deal went through with Renault. And that was the reason that we were in the financial mire that we were in, because Renault held us I'm not sure if I've talked about this before, but Renault really held us over a knife edge. And they basically said, look, we're interested in buying the team, but we don't want Pastor Maldonado as a driver. Um, so therefore, you need to you need to cut his contract. So I said, okay, we can cut his contract, but that means we don't get that $30 million. It came in installments, but it was it was, I think it was three tranches that would have come by the end of that year. Um so you were having to go without. And- during the season exactly to, to so therefore renault. we yeah. then said to we then said to oh i said to renault to to cyril and to um um jerome stroll who is the guy who was cyril's boss at the time mm. i think he still is actually um 
Oh, not now because Hill's not there. I said to them, "Look, this is fine, but we need that's our that's our working capital. That's our that's how we get through these things." And they effectively said, "Well, look, Renault is prepared to while we're going through the due diligence phase, which took an inordinate amount of time. I mean, I had ten ten guys from um, Price Waterhouse Coopers in the boardroom at Lotus for about three four months um, while they were doing their due diligence." Is that um, normal? Is that a normal amount of time? I don't know. Do you think? They were trying to bang you into administration to pull like another force India kind of maneuver. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. I was expecting oh, a way more okay. cagey answer or at least a no, pause. So they, well, there's no point in me being cagey, is there? Because it's, it's all fairly public. I mean, they, they, so they agreed that they would, whilst they were going through due diligence, they, because the, the sharehold, my shareholders at the time, um, Jeannie, um, and, and the others that, that, that are very public, um, they basically said, look, we've got two options here. Um, so we turn the finances that I've, you know, I've, I've talked about this before, but we've we turned the finance of the team around. So when I took over, so in 2013, when they had Kimi and uh, Roman and they had a real hard push to try and get second in the championship, um, they really, they really bet everything. They put everything on black um, yeah. to the extent that they couldn't pay Kimi his wages, if you remember, and he yeah. left towards the end of the season. Mysterious and, and back injury, I think. Kovalainen, and <laughs> it all went, all went pear-shaped. So I came in after that debacle. And 2013, as a financial year, they lost $64 million um, on a turnover of about $120 million, which is just insane because they were literally allowing the, the, the engineers to spend whatever they want. So the engineer said, we need another front wing. Okay, we'll spend another 500000 on it. We need another wow. whatever. So they they lost sixty four million in that year, and this is all public. And then, so the what? year ending twenty fourteen, we lost five million. So that was my first year. So I cut a hundred jobs. I stopped them sending shipments of, um, yeah. I know you pulled the face, but it was kind shipments of shipments of. You need to finish that sentence. So just shipments <laughs> of. We used to send five chassis to every race, right? Um, which is the survival cell, mm. um, which is expensive in 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 air cargo. So I had a conversation with him. I said, when was the last time that we damaged a chassis in a race? And it was uh, yes. 2010 at Monaco. When was the last time we damaged two? Well, it was 20 years ago. When was the last time that we damaged three chassis? Don't think it's ever happened. Well, then why are we taking five? We're well, just in case. And it's that kind of mentality in F1. There's a lot of just in case. Um, I think I said before, there was once when uh, the, the rear wing failed on our car um, because a, 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 a one-off load of 32G went through the the stanchion that holds the rear the rear wing up um so roman went over a curb and it and it and it spiked and the rear wing broke and we had to retire the car charlie whiting asked us to retire the car because it was flapping loose the monday morning i go into a meeting and they're redesigning the whole rear wing because you know we've had one spike of that to 32g therefore they were going to re-engineer it to 50g and i said well no it's we've done 10 races of the year with two cars and it's never happened before so we're not going to do it again so we cut lots and lots of things like that um, and we went from and laying off and laying off the staff again, I know I've talked about it before, but it was, it, I've done it before in other, in other businesses. And it's, um, you know, I, I had to go in there on day one and don't forget towards the end of 2013, they hadn't been paid some of the staff or they'd been paid late. They yeah. were reading in the press that Kimmy hadn't been paid. You know, they were reading that supplies hadn't been paid. And, and then I came in and took out Eric Boulier left. I came in. And I stood in front of them in the in the race bays. I called every single member of staff in. I think there was six hundred at the time, um, and I said to them, "Look, you know, we we 
I will make this work. I'll make this survive, but we have to make some cost cuts. You know, we can't carry on the way that we are. And that was from a business point of view. That was a, you know, this doesn't add up. The, the money that's coming, it's very, very simplistically. The money that's coming in doesn't add up to the money that's going out. So, you know, we have to make some changes. And I said to them, look, if any of you are nearing retirement age, then we'll happily, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll help with that. Any of you want to take redundancy because you're really, really just like at the end of your tether, then fine. <laughs> any of you have got offers of other jobs, you know, we'll give you a great, you know, so we did that and we started making those and we made those cuts. So 64 million loss 2013, 5 million loss 2015, break even-ish 2016. So we got the thing on the right path. Um, and the idea was that the shareholders always wanted to sell. They wanted us to get onto that path so that they could sell, so that they could get out, so it wasn't going to cost them any money going forward. And then Renault stepped forward. And Renault stepped forward mm. with an offer, um, but contingent to that offer was you do not sign Pastor Maldonado. And that's... 30 million of a hundred million dollar turnover. You know, that's a third of our income that we were saying, okay, well, we're not going to do that. And they basically said, you know, if you sign him, then we walk away. So it becomes it was some very heated shareholder meetings that, that I, uh, I, I, I chaired where they, you know, the shareholders were like, well, what do we do? You know, do we take the 30 million and keep things going or do we take the money from Renault, but Renault are going to slow time it. So in answer to your question, I think they probably did slow time it. I think they did want, there's a, there's some very specific rules within F1 about going into insolvency, about what a, what, what insolvent, what is considered insolvency. So I worked in business a long time and the, the black and white definition is if you cannot pay your debts as and when they fall due. That's it. There's no discussion about that. That is you're insolvent if you cannot pay your debts as and when they fall due. We couldn't pay our debts as and when they fell due. Okay, without the money from, from Pastor Maldonado. Or, yeah, or Renault, yeah. But if we have yeah. the money from Pastor Maldonado, yes, we can. Therefore, are we insolvent? So there becomes this whole, and you can't, there's a rule within the F1 rules and regulations that you can't run a team if you're insolvent. So we, we were, we were yeah. between a rock and a hard place, and Renault pushed it to the nth degree. You know, they, they would send us money. Um, and it was always sent as a loan in advance. If we do buy the team, if we don't, you have to repay it. And they pushed things in. I mean, they pushed it so that I was in the high court. The the VAT man tried to, he had a winding up petition and we, we were in the high court. We were on, yes. if you can't pay, they'll take it away or whatever that terrible program's called on. I mean, that was on it, Channel 5. Called that, yes. They turned up to try and um, seize some show cars because, you know, we owed money because Renault weren't giving us any money the shareholders weren't prepared to put any more money in and I wasn't allowed to take pastor's money. So um, that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it. I, I wonder if me and Matt are thinking along the same lines now, uh, but I, I'm immediately now thinking of the Force India racing point situation and of wondering, course. you know, at what point did the Stroll Consortium, this is speculation, I'm not expecting that you have any special knowledge of this, um, but when did the Stroll consorti uh, you know, con Consortium start getting involved in that process? And is it possible that VJ Malia and Force India were under similar pressures and constraints as you were yep. at Lotus? Yes, that's a yes. Times 10. Times 10. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. VJ Mal, again, it's all very public. VJ Malia was under house arrest. He wasn't allowed to go back to India. He was, you know, I think he still is. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what the latest uh, the latest events are, but his Kingfisher Airlines thing went under and he uh, he didn't pay some banks back. And he was, you know, he was he was really, really backed into a corner. They, um, you know, they missed testing because they, they didn't have parts ready on time. So they were in a very similar position. Um, I don't think they had... Um, so again, I mean, it's 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 fairly tricky to discuss. But the way that I managed, or that we managed to convince Formula One um, that we weren't insolvent, was because of the Pastor Maldonado deal. Um, now, maybe Lawrence said, you know, I'll cover all the debts if if this goes south. I don't know because technically, because then if the company goes insolvent and it gets kicked out of the championship, then you have to start a new entity. You have to come back in and it all, it all becomes a, a, a terrible mess. And technically I believe that actually did happen. I, I think Haas filed suit about that because they had joined new and had to suffer through those Stop. two yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. And force India technically was wound up when I think Perez went to court, but formula one still gave them their prize money. And I think they were not happy about uh, they that. They didn't get the points, though, that Force India got, I believe. So the championship yep, points were, the, were only counted that were scored as racing point. But EJ in our chat room has a, a reasonable question, Matt, and then we'll go back to you. Um, he's just pointing out that at the time, the rumor was that Maldonado was outed because PDVSA couldn't pay the sponsorship. So it is intriguing to to piece together that it wasn't that. There was... There was Maldonado money there on offer, mm-hmm. presumably for the following season as well. Yep. yep. Definitely. Yeah. 100%. Yep. There, yeah. There, there was, yeah. It would have if, I, I, as I said, if um, I even <laughs> I even took up the option on Jolian, um, which Renner weren't particularly happy with, um, because I was forced into a corner and that was to pay wages one day. Um, so one month I got to the point where 
I'd made a commitment to the staff there that we wouldn't pay the wages late, that I would make sure that everything was under control. And Renault weren't forthcoming, the shareholders weren't forthcoming, and we had an I had an agreement with Jolian and Jonathan that um that they could they could he would get a drive. Um and he was paying or he was his sponsors were paying some money for his drive and i took up the option um so i took up the option and and signed jolian and that paid our wages for um for a month and reno they weren't stuck with him but then so then reno had to have jolian for that first season um and i always worried that jolian would i always worried that jolian wouldn't would get kicked out at the end of that season, but he didn't. He stayed. He he stayed on for another six months after that. Well, maybe that puts. Maybe we were a bit unfair to Jolian Palmer then. If he is a driver that Renault didn't want, it is not unsurprising. Perhaps that was it. Holkenberg was his teammate at the yep. time. That, that they would favour their man, their driver. Oh, they did. I mean, I listen. I'm, you know, I know, I think you know. I know Jolian fairly well. You know, he spent when he was our third driver. He was. He was, it sounds terrible as a third driver, but he was also my driver from the hotel to the circuit. No, he wasn't. He you yep. made Jolian drive your ferry you around like your yep. own personal butler. Yep. So every <laughs> okay. morning, wherever we were, wherever we were for Friday, because he would go to the same, he would go to the same driver meetings. He'd go to the same um, strategy meetings that I would have to go to. So it was just always organized that he would, he, the rental car or the hire car or the the car that was provided for us would um, he'd stay in the same hotel as me and we'd meet in the lobby and he'd drive me to the circuit every day. So, and I'd go to dinner with him at night and him and his father and whatever. So I knew him really well. Yeah. And I still got him. I still, I still t- talk to him reasonably regularly and he did not have the same parts as Hulkenberg that year right. um, at all. But even so he started to claw things back. And by the end of the season that proved good enough that, that Renault decided to keep him on. Um, yeah, he had a good I, second run. Mm. Second half of the season, that was that was quite a good run. But again, he started slow the following season, which was disappointing. But what's interesting from that story is, I, I'm a massive fan of the BBC coverage of F1. Yep. Maybe I'm I'm biased. But Jolian Palmer, his relationship with Jack Nicholson on there is is a big part of it. And in all the talking about his F1 career, none of he's never he's never bitter about any of that. He seems like a genuine nice guy. So as a well-wisher and friend, it must be at least gratifying to just to see how how well he adapted to post-F1 life and to being a pundit and stuff. And yeah, it's interesting. You, you'd think he's got the right to kind of kick off or be a bit bitter, and a lot of guys would be. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, it, he, got, he, he did his dream job and, yeah. um, you know, he got to do his dream job and he... You know, there there can be discussion that there was assistance to get him into that. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't. There's thousands of drivers out there that can come with sponsors. Mm -hmm. And you pick the ones that you feel the best. And he had won the GP2 championship. You know, I met with him and his father. We took him on as our third driver. He proved himself warranted in that position as third driver. He had an option to come on as as the main driver. We weren't allowed to sign Pasta. the the pasta thing PDVSA and Renault there's a there's a there's a thing there between them it's more it's, it's a company you know it's PDVSA and Total and and Renault and there's, so there's there's more to it just they didn't want pasta um, so yeah so Jolian came in he got his he got his chance he raced he proved to Renault he was good enough to be given a contract for the next year um, I think he's just at peace with that I think he's you know, I think he's he's pretty happy with his lot. That being the case, I mean, did you get the sense at the time 
that Reno was maybe a little miffed that you'd sort of slid underneath their wall and managed to rescue your company? Because I think at, at that point, because we, we hadn't had Force India, but we'd seen some of the smaller teams go. And I'm sure everybody knew that it was much cheaper to buy the parts separately than it was to buy the thing whole if being an F1 is where you wanted to be. If if you had another three hours, I could tell you 10% of the stories. But I mean, so for example, the high court, the high court in London, VAT man wanting to wind up the Lotus F1 team. I pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. When when you actually get to the high court in front of the judge, you know that there's not much wiggle room left. And that was where I got to. And there were journalists waiting outside, obviously. I was there all on my own. There was nobody there from Renault. Sorry, I had our in-house lawyer with me. Um, there was just the two of us. And there was a raft of people from the VAT office. Um, the VAT man was 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 pretty terrible to us because I think he felt that it was an F1 team and we should just pay our bills. I had a meeting with him once in the Winston Churchill room at the uh, at HMRC. And we, there was about 15 of them and one of me at a desk. Um, but anyway, we went to the high court and the judge came out and Renault sent a letter. They promised me the night before that they were going to send a letter to the judge that was going to make everything all right. And to this day, I don't know what that letter said. The judge read it in his chambers and he came out and he gave us another 30 days. Oh. And that was all he said. He literally walked out because he was there to wind the company up. That yeah. was the the request from the VAT man. And the VAT man was not happy. He wanted that company wound up. I got David Cameron involved in that because David Cameron was my local MP. So where Endstone is, is David Cameron's constituency. So he was prime minister at the time. So I reached out through another um, MP called Ben Wallace, who was something to do with sports and entertainment. And he reached out to David Cameron and we said, look, can you just get the VAT man to back off? Um, the VAT man and I had a heated argument where he said that he knew that I'd gone to the prime minister, but that his boss was the queen <laughs> oh, and right. that the prime minister couldn't help me. I honestly, I could go on for weeks and weeks and weeks, but all this being said, we circumnavigated all of the attempts to close that company down. Um, we kept it going. We kept all the staff on board. We kept all their benefits on. And Renault maybe was slightly forced, as, as Matt said, but they had to take, because there's a, there's a huge cost in taking on employees um, in an existing company. You know, you've got an employee that's been there for 30 years, you know, you take on all of those benefits and all of those assets. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was it was a fairly interesting time to, wow. to put it mildly. Matt, uh, can we just have a new policy on this show, please? Uh, yeah. Please don't spend any of your time on a Sunday on future Carter shows doing show notes. I think we just we just hit record and we carry on. Uh, we've got we've got loads to talk about, and uh, we we've kind of come to fifty minutes. I don't know if you've got another twenty minutes or so mr carter I'm, to I'm, cover some honestly, ground i'm i'm good i'm i've finished my day here so i'm uh, oh I'm, okay I'm well good. good well i've got a, i've got a cold can of beer waiting for me as well so i guess we'll settle in for for another little run um that was amazing by the way all of that insight was absolutely incredible thank you so much i've i've never heard on any other f1 podcast anything close to an f1 team boss coming out and laying that kind of detail about very recent f1 history on us so thank you Thank you so much for that. And it's a wonder that you're even an F1 fan still now after the stress of all that. I can't, I can't imagine the stress, but I know you are. I know you're a, you're a very keen F1 still, uh, F1 fan still. Yeah, no, I, I enjoy the, the sport, which 
I, I didn't before, which is which is strange <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't really, you know, I think I've I've told you before we we, we I went in there as um uh to 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 represent the the owners to to represent Jedi. Um so I went in there to re- to to represent them and um I said to them at the time I know nothing about Formula 1 but I can I can help with the business side of it and they said it's okay Eric will do the business the Formula 1 side Eric Boulier and you do the business side and within a week of me being there he departed to McLaren and left me uh um up a creek let's say um and the first race I ever went to the first race that I really paid any attention to was was Melbourne 2014 and I was on the grid and sitting on the pit wall and being asked to make decisions on whether to retire cars um so it was it was quite a steep learning curve yeah but yeah so all that means that i do i have a respect for what they do and how they do it i have a huge respect for the 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 people in the background the um the hundreds and hundreds of people that are that are, are working day and night to get those cars to where they are it's it's incredible and the the levels of engineering and expertise that um, yeah. even in the smaller teams is, is insane. It's, um, it's a th- really a thing to behold. And I, again, I think I've said to you before, when you, the most incredible sight to me of all of, of all of that, of all of those three years was if we'd had a big crash or a big shunt or we needed to change an engine in a car, which happened a lot with the Renault engine. Um, you would, the car would come into the garage and you would see, so both sides of the garage. So again, a lot of this, I'm not sure if it's totally known, but you obviously have two completely separate, um, sides of the garage um but only one pit crew um so they sort of vie to be on the pit crew from either side but when one car needs an engine change or it's had a shunt or whatever you'll see about 25 30 mechanics underneath a car in the very very small confines of being laid on their back under a car usually in a hot sweaty country um and there's never a crossword you know there's never a there's never a, there's never a, a swear word there's never a nobody gets flustered everyone is just 100% focused on what they're doing and it is it's incredible to see it's incredible to see how they do that stuff i mean was it last year when max crashed on the way to the grid and yeah. they replaced half of his yep. car on the on the on the <laughs> in the on the starting grid i mean it's you know those guys are incredible at what they do yeah, and it's interesting to see, like, with Mercedes that are bringing in, like, uh, that no-blame culture to the forefront, a very kind of cool, methodical. It's a very – it's actually a very corporate engineering attitude that they that they bring. Um, they share a lot of engineers with the defense industry, and there's a kind of methodical uh, office-based engineering approach to problem solving that maybe wasn't there in the olden days, but is very prevalent now. And you can imagine with all of that, the pressure on you as a finance man who's lost his effectively sporting director, Eric Boulier, out of the door. You've got to come in and go, I mustn't mess up. I mustn't ruin it for these guys. I've got to make the right calls. I mustn't break curfew and get them fined and and use up their only one curfew for the season. So thank goodness nothing like that happened. You don't want me to tell that story again, do you? (laughs) No, no. Suffice to say... Everything I said didn't happen absolutely did happen. Sorry, Trumpets, you've been waiting at on the a At the first question. race as well. Again, at the first <laughs> race. Melbourne 2014. Sorry, Matt, I've, uh, Trumpets, I've been uh, holding you off for ages. No, well, I just, I am taken by this narrative that on every level, Formula One is this kind of a competition that we see between the drivers. And you describe the way the mechanics work together and you see how the engineers work to produce these things. Do you just see what Renault was doing 
as just an extension into the business level of simply the game of Formula One? Or, or was it more, did it feel more personal to you at the time? At the time, it felt personal. Um, and I, 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 I don't think it was. I think it was, um, there maybe have been some personal between Cyril and I, because, you know, again, they, I turned up there in 2014, not knowing anything about Formula One. It was the start of the hybrid um, era. The team had just finished fourth with Kimi and, and Roman um, and probably should have finished second in 2013. They were second for a long time and they, they fell away in the last few races of the season because Kimi wasn't there. So they were used to that level of success. The owners were used to that level of success. The sponsors were used to that level of success. And then we went into 2014 with a Renault engine that I was told probably on my first or second day that Renault were miles behind um, Mercedes and Ferrari in terms of developing their hybrid engine, that they'd really messed this up, that Viri hadn't put enough um, people onto it, et cetera, et cetera. That there was a, and they knew, everyone at Lotus knew that the Renault engine was miles behind. And they also knew that any progress that they made would be given to Red Bull because Red Bull had just come off the back of four consecutive seasons of winning the championship. So the feeling at Lotus was that whilst a lot of the employees there were ex-Renault employees, that they were going to be a bit shafted. And then we um, we went to that first test and the car basically didn't come out of the garage. Even the Red Bull, they they didn't they did hardly any laps at all. The engine kept failing. I think we talked before about there was a, the MG UK. There was a the shaft that runs the MG UK that they'd made too thin, um, so it had like a torque on it, and it was snapping every time we went out of the garage, and they couldn't manufacture a new one. There was it was just a a, a catalogue of errors. Um, and midway through the season, as I sat on the strategy group, Toto was aware that McLaren were going to Honda. So that was the fourth. So there's a rule that you can only supply four teams. Uh, well, there was then anyway. I don't know if it's changed now. But there's a rule then that you can only supply four teams with an engine. So the Mercedes were supplying Williams, uh, Racing Point, um, McLaren and themselves. Yeah. So Toto told me at a strategy group that McLaren were going to Honda and therefore there was a Mercedes engine up for grabs. Now I had <laughs> the five-year contract sitting on my desk with Renault um, for the engine and I hadn't signed it. Um, because I knew that there were issues with it. And I'd constantly, um, I don't want to make myself sound anything other than 100% genuine, but I shuffled it around, moved it from one part of my desk to another. And every so often, someone from France would ring up and say, it's about that contract. And I go, oh, yeah, I'm just getting to it. I've uh, just flown back in from somewhere. I haven't got time to, to, to stick my signature on it. And at some point mid-season, I had the conversation with the shareholders where I said, look, um, there's a Mercedes engine up for grabs. Uh, it actually costs less than the Renault engine. Um, I think that that's the way that we should go. You know, you're asking me to 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 move this team forward. I think that's the biggest the biggest advantage that we can get. Rather than spending millions of dollars on aerodynamics to gain a tenth here or a tenth there, I think the engine's gonna is gonna progress us up the field faster than anything else. Um, and that's what we did. But so I spent the remainder of the 2014 season technically without a contract to have an engine supply and Cyril mm. didn't like that. And um, so when um, the, the original question from Matt was, and well done for looping it all the way back round, was did it feel like there was something personal <laughs> involved there? So when you're saying, so, um, can, you, can you lend us a few quid to get us to the end of the season? You get the reply, oh, no, uh, oh, yes, we see your request, but it, it was on my desk. Oh, oh, there it is, on the left side of my desk. 
No, I think it was even more than that because it was Cyril took it very personally that he. Um, so at the time, he they 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 just lost Caterham, obviously um, that they were supplying. So there's probably only us and there was only us and Red Bull that they were supplying at that time, um, and um, yeah, I, I've, I've told you before in Singapore there was a fairly heated exchange in a hotel lobby in in Singapore where. Uh, he told me that they weren't going to supply us engines for the rest of the season. And I even started looking into it and speaking to Bernie about the rules, about how many events we could miss, because oh. as we were counting down the events at the end <laughs> of the season, I was like, okay, well, if Renault don't supply us with an engine at the last two races, technically we've still got an entry into 2015 because I think the rule back then was that you could, if you missed three events, then you were kicked out of the championship, but Jeez. you could miss two. So I was like, swerving and negotiating and making sure that we got an engine and making sure that the engine landed from Renault and we pushed it and and that was and Cyril didn't like it you know he was he was obviously very upset at the decision um he felt that Renault were going to make things better and it was all going to be great and I didn't so I signed the deal with Mercedes and 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 off we trotted down that route and uh again speaking to Jolian I think he said that on a podcast as well actually when he went in so they had all the sim data for the Mercedes engine and then Renault bought back in 2016 and put the, the Renault engine back in. And they said that, so Barcelona was always the circuit yeah. that we ran in the sim. They were 1.5 seconds behind with all the same settings. Everything Ooh, exactly the same. That is, Everything that's... exactly the same. Just literally, they were just changing the power unit from, so that was 2015 15, into 16. Yeah. That, is, that is absolutely savage. I, I want to bring that into modern Alpine as well, because that's where we started. But I'll take this uh, opportunity to leverage all the great information from Matthew Carter to to try and get you guys to appreciate that this is what we try and do at Missed Apex. We try and bring interesting people here to bring you great information. If you want to help us do that, there's a few ways you can do that. Um, if you're watching the YouTube version, like and subscribe. I hate to be that YouTuber, but I am assured that that's what you need to do to help us. Like, subscribe, uh, and make a comment to help us go up the algorithm in YouTube. Uh, if you are... Uh, a podcast listener, we have a link to the webpage. You can always just share www.mistapex.net with your friends on social media, and that will bring you to the homepage where not only can you click play on the video and see our faces, because people always go, oh my God, I didn't know Matt Trumpets looked like that. I always thought he was a big fat guy. That's what everyone says about you, Trumpets. They, they always say, always. Yeah, they always go, wow. He's, always. He's not a big fat guy. No, he's not. Matt is like an athletic 55 year old man. He's a cyclist. That's where Matt PT55, his Twitter handle, comes from because you were a big gear guy on your cycle. Yep. On the time trial, I would run the 55 tooth chain ring, and that's where mm -hmm. the 55 comes from. Yep. I'm always interested when you talk about that, but you can follow Matt at MattPT55, by Shall the way. Shall I talk about tires instead? No. Let's talk about when you go to www.mistapex.net or mistapexpodcast.com. You have the video there to click on. You also have the audio version to click on, and you can subscribe to us at Mist Apex. Um, by searching for Missed Apex on your podcast player of choice. Uh, but the point is, you can always share mistapex.net with your friends on your social media, and we'd really, really appreciate that. If you want to go one step further, if you think that podcasts deserve the same support that you give Spotify and that you give Netflix, then I, I will fight on behalf of all podcasts that you should also take $8.99 and support podcasts because supported podcasts survive. Ones from big agencies so the missed apex uh, sorry the motorsport.com podcast is funded 
by a massive group, as is WTF1, as is the BBC one, support an independent podcast. And of course, I'll be biased and say support us by going to patreon.com forward slash missed apex. So hopefully I can bring this into modern F1. And we talk about Alpine. They are, of course, the current incarnation of Renault. And I've already heard some disgruntled grumblings from Alonso. Can you believe, Mr. Carter, that Alonso, that whined and moaned about the Honda engine in the McLaren, calling it a GP2 engine, calling it a yoke, uh, has nearly instantly come back into Alpine and started saying, oh, the car doesn't feel good. Now, I just think, I think Mr. Alonso is just a very, very honest dude. I honestly don't think, I think if the car was amazing, he would sit there and say, the car is amazing. But to hear slight grumbling noises from him, I I, I get the feeling that Re- Renault slash Alpine has always um, talked a big game. And as you said, you know, they, they had this plan that was, they're constantly having to justify their existence to the to the parent company, and they've never quite fulfilled that promise. I, I just think Alpine is going to be much of the same. I don't see much change. I, I still see them as being fifth, sixth in the in the championship. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think there's um, without a huge change, there is generally certainly in modern F one. There's there's a pecking order that uh, is hard to change, and. Um, Renault came in and they invested some money in certain areas. Um, my opinion is they didn't invest the money in the right areas. Um, and unless you get a Lawrence Stroll that comes in and really significantly changes um, the prospects, or unless you've got a team like McLaren that's already got the um, the bare bones and the knowledge and the expertise, then it's difficult to make a big change. Um and I think I think Renault are just where they are really. I think they um they're gonna struggle to make to make much of a move forward. Yeah, I and I do wonder because I would have imagined that this entire plan would have aimed at this year being a big regulation change. And well, yeah, we're we're gonna get more competitive, but we're gonna take this as a topsy turvy time, the brand new regulations, and that's where we're gonna make our real push. But I haven't seen from the team, the investment I would have expected, it's just like the cooling they use and stuff like that, you would think would be updated to match what Mercedes and the teams at the top are doing if that's really where they want to be. So could it be that they're really just saving this all up? Or has it always been just like, we're just going to skate by and keep this going as long as we can? But my honest opinion is that there's probably a, a little bit of a lack of direction. Um, and I think that maybe comes from, well, certainly from recently, certainly from, from Cyril leaving and, uh, and obviously Carlos go no, no longer being there to, to push it through. I think there's maybe a little bit of lack of direction. Um, but even, but the, the direction that they had from day one was, again, it's my opinion. It's, it's, it's nothing else, but the, the, the direction they had from day one, that just didn't seem right to me. They, they came into a team that, um, for, for possibly not the right reasons, but for reasons that had been slimmed down and had been streamlined and had been, you know, um, for want of a better word, we'd cut all of the fat out of that team that was there before. So it was a very functional, it was a very operational team. Um, 
potentially too much. You know, you could say it was a little bit threadbare. Um, but as I touched on before, you know, we scored a podium in 2015 um, through merit. You know, there were, that wasn't because a lot of a lot of cars um, failed. I mean, Vettel had a had a had a, um, a puncture on the with two laps to go. But aside from that, we were there on on raw pace. So there was there was the bones of a team there that they could have worked with. And I saw their business plan when they first came in, and and a lot of it revolved around changing the furniture and putting some new carpet down and. Uh, then there was this crazy claim that Cyril had made in his document that had said that they needed to to put another 150 heads in, um, to which I questioned him directly and said, well, where have you analysed where you want to put those heads? And he said, no, we just need 150 more because that's what Mercedes have got. Um, and that kind of mentality just sort of leads me to think that they, they, they've they've invested money, but not necessarily in the right place. Has that therefore led to Carlos Ghosn? Uh, well, it, that didn't lead to Carlos Ghosn going, but you know, his uh, his his um, his push with the board maybe uh, obviously fell away. So there might not have been as much money to push forward. But um, I don't know. I just think I don't think they invested in the right areas. And there was a lot of there's a lot of lap time that they maybe could have got that they didn't. Um, if I was being cruel, I could call it a vanity project, um, which is being cruel. But um, I, I I feel that that is maybe it. But all that being said, don't forget they're there to sell cars. They're not they're not there to win races. They're there to they're there to sell Renault cars. So um, you know that's that's the end game. Renault would love to be world champions because they would sell more cars if they were world champions. But their end game is that they want to sell cars. So is it entirely wrong of me every time you say Carlos Ghosn that I hear in my head, Carlos going, going, going? <laughs> okay, I'll take it. That means yes. And, and, and it's not unknown that you've had occasional contacts with Esteban Ocon. Have you picked up anything on the grapevine about what their chances might be this season? Or, or is it just exactly what you think you saw at testing? Um, I, to be honest, I haven't, I haven't spoken to him recently. Um, so no, I don't, I don't have any insights. Um, as I say, my, my gut instinct is, which is a terribly boring answer that it's all going to be fairly similar to what it was last year. I, I don't see there's going to be, um, a huge amount of McLaren. If the Mercedes engine has still got at least some of the advantage that, um, that it had back in 2015, um, which is not to say that it has, then they will take a bit of a step forward just through the just through the extra um, increase in power that that engine is going to give them. But aside from that, I think the rest of it's going to stay fairly where it is, and 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 therefore Alpine, Stroke, Renault are going to remain in that midfield. I have a million more questions. That yeah, I mean, you've literally unleashed an entire another show just with that singular reply. I'm like, oh, I wanted to ask about this. Okay, we've got seven I to minutes. Ask about that. So. I have seven minutes. Can I get in two more topics? I'm then? sure we can. <laughs> one, one being, um, speaking of McLaren, very interestingly, and in contrast to Mercedes, they showed up with their car very early already on the premise that because they had a new engine, they wanted to have extra time to double check stuff. Mercedes, on the other hand, we don't even know where they spent their tokens. We don't actually know what their car is going to look like when they wander onto track eventually. As a team principal, when you were in charge, which 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 approach did you prefer, and why? 
I did, when I was a team principal, it was at Lotus. So let's just throw that caveat in there for a minute. So okay, I would have loved to have been prepared and ready and do a thousand laps, et cetera, et cetera. But um, uh, for Mercedes, I, I, I think they're, they're both doing what they're going to do. I mean, McLaren, um, they need to get some mileage in that car, obviously, because they need to they need to bed in all of the other new stuff. I mean, the Mercedes engine has a completely different configuration. You know, the um, the exhaust uh, locations, the engine mounting point, everything about it's different. You know, we had that when we went from Renault to Mercedes. Maybe some of it's changed. Even the cooling systems are all different. Um, so they've got a huge amount of bedding in. So, you know, they've... Um, financially they should be in a position whereby they could have they could have done that early enough to to get everything ready to to jump out on track mercedes is the opposite mercedes are um coasting is not the right word but for sure they they don't have to worry about um a lot of things that i mean mercedes are going to still be at the top of the the timing sheets that's you know we'd be foolish to think that they're they're not going to be so therefore (laughs) they can you know they can be a bit more laid back i mean I've seen James Allison's interviews. He doesn't look as if he's concerned. He doesn't look as if he's worried, you know, they're okay. We've tested a few things. We've done this, we've done that. Um, I think the bigger issue at Mercedes is, is Lewis Hamilton's contract and why it's only a year long. And um, I heard Martin Brundle the other day saying that he'd interviewed him and that he wasn't happy that it was only a year long, that he, you know, that he felt that there were, that, that the, the negotiations hadn't gone particularly well for him. Um, so I think maybe there's there's other issues at play with Mercedes, but I don't think the performance of the car is going to be one of them. And all of that leads back round to me honestly believing that it's going to be Ocon and Russell in that car, maybe next year, but certainly within a few years. Ocon and, on that and note, Russell. <laughs> well, obviously Russell's a bit of a shoe in but um, yeah, I mean Ocon. I already done. Yeah, I think the Russell deal is probably already done. Yeah, that's amazing because I I got the feeling with the Hamilton one year thing. That actually they left themselves a, a default second year. So although it is absolutely a one-year deal, both sides have an option for a two-year deal. So if it got difficult, I get. Is this too simplistic for contract rules and contract negotiations? That if it gets to the end of the year and both parties are kind of like, I mean, fine. I, I guess I would like to negotiate a little bit better, but not enough to make an issue of it it defaults and just rolls over into a 2022 deal as well. Well, that's absolutely too simplistic. Okay. Otherwise they wouldn't have been talking about right. it for a year, <laughs> okay. but I get, I get what, no, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. And I think, um, we, I know you're, you're, you're very pro Lewis. No, on the, on this mutual, no. I, I, I think there's a, a big chunk of it was to do with money. I think. Yeah. Um, and obviously, um, even the likes of Mercedes, you know, the the what's happened in the last year has affected everyone, you know, and prize money is going to drop next year. And, um, you know, I'm aware, again, it's a whole nother thread, but I'm aware that promoters are really struggling. Um, um, you know, there were no race fees and Liberty lost all the money that they lost in their, in their latest audited account. So they can't afford to pay or they can't, not that they can't afford, that's not the right word, mm. but they're not obligated to pay as much money to the team's next year so and there's the budget cap which i know doesn't affect driver's salaries but there's all of these things that all build into the case and you have to throw into the mix that russell did a pretty good job when he was in that car so um whoa 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 i don't want to argue with you but lewis hamilton he won a race with three wheels george russell just had a puncher and didn't even win case closed as far as i'm concerned but look look lewis hamilton has a very good argument lewis hamilton has a massive marketability and i I may have been watching too much of 
Dwayne Johnson's Ballers on um it's it's a sports agent uh, program okay. with yeah, Dwayne yeah. Johnson and and you know it's it it highlights like the pull of the big stars and the not the ego but oh, well I mean, I, I'm sure there is a bit of ego in that as well but a lot of it is point scoring so a lot of it is is not just what do I need to live Lewis Hamilton's fine I'm sure he's set up for life but if Vettel is getting thirty million. And he's a four-time world champion. Then Lewis Hamilton is sitting there going, "Well, well, I, I am a, a seven-time world champion. I need, I need forty million because that's that's the value, and it and it works out like that." So I'm sure that driver managers and agents are in their ears all the time saying, "Hey, hey, hey don't you settle for that deal from Toto? They're mugging you off. Uh, don't worry about the cost cap. Don't worry about the global economy." Vettel has just got this deal for for this amount. Of course, that doesn't take into account that, well, Vettel's going to a team that has effectively a blank checkbook. So my question to you as an uh, an ex-F1 principal would be, these driver managers, these financial advisors, these guys in the ear, the entourage uh, around these drivers, because I know Lewis Hamilton has just changed his management team. Are they allies? Are they your friends? Are they a pain in the butt? Are they people you have to argue with constantly? And is it coming from the drivers or is it coming from their money men pushing for the best possible deal? Um, the best answers to all these questions are usually a bit of both. Um, and unfortunately, I'd, I'd love to say I had more actual real life experience, but I didn't have that much Um I dealt with Sergio Perez's um, management because he wanted to come to Lotus. Um, oh. But aside from that, I think Lewis negotiates his deals on it by himself. So that kind of negates that a little bit. Um, and I think that, um, I, I mean, answer to your question, no, I, I, I never really had any pushy mm. um, agents coming coming at me. Um, Julian Jacoby is the guy that is that represents Sergio Perez, and he's a lovely guy. Um, and he and he was and he was a gentleman all the way through. It was Sergio wanted out of at that time. Sergio wanted out of um, Force India or Racing Point or whatever the hell it was called at the time, um, and had a chunk of um, backers behind him. And I put the deal. I met. <laughs> I had a clandestine meeting with um, with Sergio in a, a neutral <laughs> hotel room in a Bahrain uh, hotel, um, where we discussed a deal. Um, he wanted to come to Lotus. I wanted him to come to Lotus. I put it to my shareholders. And the 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 raw facts were that he was, well, you can work out the figures from what we've already been talking about, but sure. he was about 5 million shy of where Pastor Maldonado was. Oh, and wow. my point was that that 5 million could be made up in extra points that we yeah. would have scored during Jeez. and some extra sponsors that maybe we could have got and some extra whatever. But yeah, that was back in uh 15 so mm. he was bringing with him uh telmex and yeah. banamex and i can't remember um wow so you've met so, sergio perez in person is he brilliant tell me he's brilliant please tell me he's brilliant i think i've met pretty much all of the drivers <laughs> in, in person sergio's a lovely guy yeah, he's a lovely lovely guy i was i was sent a clip today from i know you didn't want to talk about drive to survive no. of um there's a bit apparently a clip i was sent of valtteri bottas talking um they're in Sochi and he's talking yes. about uh, Russian karaoke. Right. And they, he's the guy's with said that, oh, yeah, that was 2015. We didn't miss the flight. That was me that was with him. Wait a minute. It was me, him, and Daniel Kvyat. <laughs> and we all came out of the restaurant in the hotel at the same time. It was the Sunday night. Brilliant. We were super tired. And there was something going on back in the UK that I was trying to deal with. I can't remember what was going on. And we ended up in this karaoke bar. 
and um, either Kvyat or Bottas kept buying drinks, and I just and I sat yes. with them, and we sat and we sat and we sat and we sat and we sat, and he was um, he was hilarious that night. It was a very very funny night, but yeah, I think I nearly missed my flight as well after that. Awesome. But, um, and what was everyone's karaoke choice? Uh, mine for the record is so Shakira. Know- try everything, but. So I don't think I, well, in fact, I know I didn't sing, but I know Kavir, uh, Danny sang, there's a song called Cocaine. Okay. And I don't know who sings it. <laughs> okay. It's someone like Leonard Pattern. Cohen or someone like that. Googling now. Anyway, he, that, was, that was his song of choice. Excellent. And, he, and, uh, and Bottas? Don't remember. I honestly don't remember. It was one of those nights. I don't remember much about it, but I remember uh, it, having a bit of a headache the next day. But no, someone's... The, the guy that was with me, Federico, who was my sort of um, deputy team principal, he sent me the clip earlier on that because um, he was with me that night that we were we were in there. So, uh, yeah, no, I, you know, he, um, so driving managers was the question. Anyway, we, we, we got way laid on that. No, it's okay. Um, Would you like some facts about the song Cocaine? Um, it was a song written and recorded in 1979 by singer-songwriter J.J. Kale. The song was popularised by Eric Clapton after his cover version yes, Eric Clapton. was, that was released the version. on the 1997 yes. album Slow Hand. Uh, so there we go. And now we can go to driver managers. <laughs> this is a disaster. I told you the story. So last year... Um, obviously not last year because we've there's been a year deleted in Austin 2019 I was in um, the paddock and um, because a little bit talking about Hamilton and Bottas and the difference between the two of them so I was in I was in the paddock and I was with some some people and um, I took them down and was showing them around and we were we were walking around and they, they had their son with them and their son wanted pictures with all the F1 drivers obviously so I was walking around the paddock and I left them to go off and Lewis Hamilton was walking down. He's literally going from his hospitality to the garage. And he had a thousand people sure. following him, press and people yeah. are like clamoring behind him. And the kid of the people that I was with wanted a picture. And I said, look, I don't think you've got much chance, but just go up there and ask and, and you may get a picture. So he, they left. So I was hanging back a fair way. And walking next to me was Valtteri. Oh. Nobody in his race suit nobody even giving him the time of day looking at him talking to him you've got this this entourage in front of of hamilton with hundreds of people around him and him walking next to me and he looked over to me and uh and i just said it's, it's crazy isn't it and he was like yep so earlier you said that you thought that i didn't want to talk about drive to survive no i'm completely happy to talk about drive to survive i think it's excellent i haven't seen it unfortunately but we will do a mini we will do a mini not spoilery review segment of it in our season preview on sunday where we've got carl power and chris stevens joining us in the shed uh, as well but from what i've seen so far episode two did uh focus heavily on Valtteri Bottas, some really interesting stuff about um, about qualifying in Sochi, for example. But he sat there and he made the point and he was saying, everybody knows Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton is a worldwide recognised name. Not so many people know Valtteri Bottas. So, you know, he's very realistic uh, about that. And actually, I mean, hats off to him, uh, Matthew. He, 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 you know, he's sitting there and he's, he's saying, I, I've got the biggest challenge in F1. Probably of anyone ever in the history of F1, his his mountain is is the biggest. Yeah. And that segues back to what you were saying before about um, driver managers and Lewis. And Lewis has got a whole 
there's a kudos there. There's a there's something there, and I think that honestly, I think if it hadn't have been Lewis Hamilton, he may not have had a contract for this year with Mercedes. Because I think the reason it took so long was because there was so much internal argument that do we need to pay him this much money? Yeah, but he is a global superstar. Yeah. You know, he's a, and and I think there's a lot. I think if he'd have been almost anyone else, if he'd have been. And I'm not saying if he'd have been Vettel, but if he'd have been of Vettel's um, character, which is superstar, amazing, but not that far out there, keeps himself to himself, a little bit more private. If he'd have been of that kind of ilk, I think they may have said, well, you know what, we'll go with Russell. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. He's he's an he's an incredible personality. He is Formula One. Yeah. He's, um, you know, he's he's everything at the moment. But to ask or to, 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 to strive for the money that I believe he was asking for at the moment, you know, um, I think those big deals died. I think, I think Verstappen and Charles Leclerc got the last two big deals in formula one. Yeah. Um, and Lewis maybe just missed the, missed the boat slightly, but I don't, and I don't think Vettel's on a lot of money at Aston, by the way, I think there's a lot of promises of, of, um, glory. I, not sure what I know and what I'm. Isn't it like um, a points and a bonus kind of thing? Matt, a lot Matt, of time, Matt. Don't interrupt, Mr. Carter, when he's accidentally about to reveal something massive. What? What do you know about the promises of what? End of. Yes, Matt. What were you saying? <laughs> Fine. Saved by the trumpet. Uh, we are out of time here, guys, but we do have time for one last award, and that is. Comment of the week. Matt, can you please, for my sanity, keep it to three nominations for comment of the week? And let Mr. Carter be the judge. Yelmer Vanderlei. I read on other forums, Cyril is still there. And Alpine's airbox, mouth open. <laughs> okay, next. Stuart clearly gonna Neal. Win. That's clearly going to win. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even feel like I should go on. But Stuart Neal, we'll give, him, we'll give him his due. Who knew Renault had a Welsh management team going by the accent that Spanners just used? Hey, I my accents are very, they're, they're not only audibly correct, but if you look at my Italian accent, they are also visually correct as well. And uh, finally, we're going to get in with Pete Jenkins talking about a brief interruption to our live stream saying, map lawyers shut that one down in record time. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, I'm assuming you're still giving it to the first comment, Mr. Yes, Carter. Absolutely. Uh, yep. uh, trumpets, please repeat. All right, our winner this week, Yelmer Vanderlei. I read on other forums, Cyril is still there. And Alpine's airbox, mouth open. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much for the generous time and comment of Mr. Carter, ex-Lotus F1 CEO. Follow Matt at MattPT55. You can email Matt if you'd like to. uh, Matt at MrApex.net. I'm Spanners at mistapex.net as well. Uh, you can support us financially on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash mistapex. We'll add you to a private forum where all our patrons hang out and me and Matt hang out in there probably more than we should. I'm, I'm probably there every day as well. It's become my favourite place to hang out and talk about Formula One. And also you can uh, like and subscribe, share the programme and tune in because... We are going to have a a season preview on Sunday with Kyle and Chris. We're going to be catching up with Joe Saywood, who has been a reporter on every Grand Prix since 1988. We're going to be catching up with him on Tuesday. 
the 23rd as well. So we'll stream that live around 2 p.m. UK time. Wherever we see you next, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. Tell your friends the links below to share. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.